Good morning. Thank you, Ben. So this is our last week in our open mic series. Uh, if you want to find out what series we're starting next week, you'll have to come next week and find out. I'm not going to say. But if you ask Chris afterwards, he'll probably tell you. So. But this is the last week of open mic. Most of the open mics that we've done have been big questions. And what that means is uh, all of you have questions. And we invite you to ask those questions. And then we look through them. Uh, and they're all good questions, but not all of them are preachable. So we pick out ones that are preachable. And then sometimes we'll respond in emails or conversations to some of the other good questions that for whatever reason... Either there's not enough to the question to make a whole sermon, or there's too much, and it would be four sermons, or whatever it might be. This is not a big question sermon. So, as I was thinking through, there were still some other ones and some good ones, but uh, I wanted to, in praying about it and thinking about it, I wanted to do a sermon that was um, very directly just praise to God as kind of a capstone to this open mic series. And of course, in one sense, every sermon is praise to God and praise to Christ. It's not like the previous weeks were not that. But just after all we've learned in all the different topics and all the different facets of Christ, we've uh, seen as we take that diamond of Christ and twist it in the light, just to, at the end of the day, stand back and say, praise you, God, for who you are and what you've done. So in one sense, this sermon could be like five minutes because you read through and Paul writing this passage, which is from Romans 11, he's just saying, praise God for these specific things and give him glory forever. And that's all it is. But uh, we are going to dig in a little bit and uh, look at some of the phrases he uses, some of the things he's saying, some of the questions he asks. So I guess we kind of get some of Paul's big questions uh, or bad questions in this sense. But let us do that. So I will pray, and then introduce myself, and then we'll get into the last few verses of Romans chapter 11. God, we thank you uh, that you have revealed yourself and shown yourself worthy of praise and also made yourself known so we can praise you. And we thank you that that praise is not just generic praise for some supernatural being, uh, but specific praise for Christ and what he's done for us, which we're going to look at in just a minute. Uh, in Corinthians, God, you say that your spirit searches the deep things of God and reveals them to us, and I pray that that would be true this morning as I preach. Amen. My name is Jesse Splann. I'm one of the elders at Hiawatha, if you don't know me or you're new, and I am not one of the main preachers, but one of the privileges of being an elder is getting to preach uh, roughly once a year, give or take a little, depending on what's going on. And so it's my pleasure to be here this morning and uh, preach this passage. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All right, we're going to start with verse 33, and we're going to work forwards through most of it. Then we're going to work backwards through it, and then we're going to skip to the end. 
So starting with 33. <laughs> if that's confusing to you, it will hopefully be clear as we go. <laughs> and if not, that's on me then. So verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So a few things to point out in this verse. One, don't overlook the fact at the beginning of verse 33 that God has riches. He has riches. And specifically in this passage, he has riches of wisdom and knowledge. Now other parts of scripture say he has riches in other ways. But for this morning, looking at this passage, riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. So I don't know as you're here this morning how you think about God, what you think God is like, but do you think of God as someone who's rich, someone who has riches, and as we're going to see, doesn't have them and hoard them, but shares those riches? And not begrudgingly, or because he's God and that's what God's supposed to do, but he loves to share the riches that he has with us. And we're going to look at uh, more of how that happens and the specific ways those riches are shared. But also, notice that it says he has depth of riches. So he has riches to share, but we don't have to worry that the riches will ever be exhausted. No matter how much riches he shares with us, there's always more. There's always more depth. I think of, if you know the old uh, cartoon series DuckTales and Scrooge McDuck, he had the money bin, and it was filled with money and he would swim around in it, which I don't know how that works, but I suppose if you're a cartoon, it does. But I think of God's riches sometimes like that. Like, it's like that money bin. And so when people come to him or when he goes to them to share riches, he takes some of those riches off the top and gives it to them. But that bin never depletes. Like, no matter how much he takes, it's always full. He'll never get to the bottom. He'll never worry about running out. He'll never have to ration his riches to us or ration his generosity. No matter how much we need and how many of us need it at the same time, there will always be more. If you think about people in the world who are very wealthy, you think about how much riches they have and how they could share that with people, and they could give a lot, but it's not infinite. It's not inexhaustible. Eventually, if they kept giving, especially with the number of people on earth, if everyone came to them, they would eventually run out of riches, or they'd have to stop being generous so they didn't run out. That is not the case with God. He'll never run out, and he'll never stop being generous with it. And then... What are the riches? Riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. Where do you seek wisdom in your life? Where do you seek knowledge? Another way to ask it, where do you go for answers in your life? Do you go to friends or family? Do you go to your social media accounts? Do you go to education? Do you go to relationship? Where do you go when you're looking for wisdom, when you're looking for knowledge, when you need answers, do you go to God? Do you believe that, like it says here, God actually has wisdom and knowledge that he can give you? And that that's actually riches. It's actually wealth. That what he has to give you is better than what you can find anywhere else. And I'm not saying there's no value of any kind in knowledge and wisdom of things you can find in other areas but I'm saying especially those deep core things, those questions of who am I, what's my value, those desires for love and acceptance, ultimately all those things 
can only be fully satisfied in the riches that God provides. Where do you look when you're seeking answers? Do you look to God? Do you seek his riches? So then it says, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Unsearchable his judgments. Now this is interesting because it says God has this riches of wisdom and knowledge. But then he says, well, you can't really find it. He's got all these riches to share, but you can't find it. Because his judgments, his knowledge, the judgments he makes using his knowledge and wisdom, they're unsearchable. No matter how long you look for them, you won't find them. It's like a buried treasure, and no matter where you dig, you'll never dig in the right place. And then it says his paths are beyond tracing out. So this is a map of part of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area up in northern Minnesota, a place with woods and lakes where you can go paddle around and hike, and all those red dots are campsites you can stay at. A lot of fun. Unless you don't like camping, it won't change your mind. But if you do, a lot of fun. So this map covers the area. My brother and I, my brother lives in Michigan, so I don't get to see him a lot. But occasionally he'll come and we'll go to the Boundary Waters. And the last time he came and we did that, this map covers the area that we went in. So we went into the Boundary Waters right over here. And then we came out of the Boundary Waters right down here. So we went from here down through these lakes. These yellow marks are portages. That's just land between lakes. So you canoe, and then you get to the portage, you pick up your canoe and all your gear, and you walk, and then you canoe again. So we started in South Lake and ended on Hungry Jack Lake. Now, those of you who have been to the Boundary Waters and see this map and there's some familiarity, I could hand you this map and I could trace out with a pen or a marker or something the route we took. I could mark like an X on South Lake, and then say we came down here, and down here, and through here, and we ended up on Duncan Lake, and then we went through to Moss, and then down to Hungry Jack. I could do that, and you could follow that. For those of you who maybe have been camping but never to the Boundary Waters, I could trace that route, and with a little instruction, you'd probably do fine. Some pointers on how you find things when you're out there, you'd probably do okay. So... Part of it, there's really only one way through or one easy way. But here, there are branching paths. So if I didn't trace it, you wouldn't know, well, did they come down through bearskin? Did they come down through moss? You could go either way. You'd end up at the same place. But this is pretty simplified to get from South Lake to Hungry Jack Lake. What Paul is saying and what God is ultimately saying when he says his paths are beyond tracing out, he said, he's saying even if God handed you the map fully marked with everything he's done, it would be impossible for you to trace the route. Even with the map in your hand and all the markings on it of like, this is what I did here and it led here and this is what I did here, you could not trace it out. It's too complex. It's too interwoven. There's too much there. Even with it in your hand, all the resources, God says, yeah, you can't trace it. You can't follow the path I've done from beginning to end. It can't be done. So, now we've got this riches of wisdom and knowledge that apparently we can't actually access or obtain, which seems to be an issue. Some translations where it says his paths are beyond tracing out say his paths are unfathomable. A fathom, if you don't know, is a unit of measure that measures depth, like Little Mermaid, mysterious fathoms below the depth. 
I won't sing it. You're all welcome. But some of them say uh, unfathomable, and I like that. I mean, this is fine. This is accurate. But the thing I like about unfathomable is it links up with that depth of riches. No matter how deep you go, you'll never touch the bottom. No matter how deep you go in God's riches, you can't touch bottom. So the Mariana Trench is the deepest part of the ocean. And it's so deep, if you took Mount Everest and you had the tools and the strength and you like cut Mount Everest off at the base so you could lift it off the earth and you flipped it upside down and put it in the ocean over the Mariana Trench, the top of Mount Everest, which would now be underwater pointing down, would not touch the bottom of the trench. The trench is deeper than Mount Everest is high. And the depth of God's riches is so much deeper than that it can't be calculated. It's unfathomable. You can't get to the bottom. And there's the mastermind. So, we've got this little problem. We've got this great thing, this depth of riches and uh, knowledge and wisdom, but apparently we have issues accessing it. So let's keep going. And spoiler alert, uh, there is a way to it through Christ. Shouldn't be a surprise if you've been to Hiawatha before, but we will get there and show how that's possible. So moving on to verses 34 and 35, Paul writes, Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? So these questions are interesting because they actually have two correct answers. So we talk sometimes at Hiawatha about the human side of things and the divine side, and we're going to look at that now. So the human side, who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Who has ever been God's counselor and said, you know, God, you've got this plan, but here, listen to this. I've got some ideas you might not have thought of. These are really great. No one. Who has ever given to God that God should repay? No one. Now that last one, who has ever given to God, if you stop it there and don't have the second part of that sentence, who has ever given to God? Every believer who's alive. We give God praise. We give him glory. We give him worship. We give him thanksgiving. So who's given to God? We've all given to God. But none of that giving that we give to God is given in such a way that God owes us repayment. Because even those things we give ultimately come from him and the fact that his spirit is inside us. So really it's him giving to himself through us. Like when a kid, a little kid, buys their parent a Christmas present or a birthday present and they do it with the parent's own money and like the other parent goes with to go shopping and they're like, look what I got you. It's like, well, yeah, kind of but I kind of just got it for myself through you. So it's kind of like that. So who is given to God? Many people. But who is given to God that God owes repayment? No one. Uh, it's interesting. So this is the end of Romans 11. And if you're familiar with Romans at all, the first 11 chapters, Paul does this thing where he'll make a statement and explain something about theology and salvation. And then at the end of that, he'll anticipate the questions people would have to kind of respond, and, and then he'll ask that question, and then he'll write more in response to that and anticipate the next question. So he'll write about how the more we sin, the more God's grace increases. So you can never out-sin God's grace. And then he anticipates the question that's like, oh, so should I sin more? Because the more I sin, the more grace God gives, and it shows off his grace more. So you're saying I should like sin as much as possible. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not correct. And then he answers that and goes on. So all those questions that he asks, or almost all of them, 
come from one of these three questions here. They come from either thinking that you know the mind of the Lord, thinking you can be his counselor, or thinking you've given to God in such a way that he owes repayment. So it's kind of fun to read through those first 11 chapters and kind of link them up. And it's like, oh, they asked this question. That's because you asked that question from the mindset of thinking God owes you something. Or you asked that from the mindset of thinking that you understand God's plan. So those first two questions sound pretty similar. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? So just to clarify a little bit the difference between them. So the first one, who's known the mind of the Lord? If you're thinking like that, you don't think that you know better than God or you have a better plan than God, but you think you have God fully figured out. So you come and you think, oh yeah, I know what God's doing. I know his plan for salvation and for the world. So yeah, so he's doing this. He's kind of on this trajectory. So I'll just run ahead of him a few steps because I know what he's doing. You think you understand his mind and then you run ahead and do something and he's like, actually, that's not what I was going to do in that situation. How many of you with a spouse or a friend, have ever made a decision because you know the person so well, and so you made a decision without talking to them, and you were sure that the decision you made, they would not only be okay with, but that's what they would have wanted to do in that situation. And then you go and you tell them, I did this, and they're like, why would you do that? That's not what I want. And you're like, what are you saying? Like, I have known you for 20 years. Like, this is what we do in this situation. And they're like, that's not what I wanted. That's thinking you know the mind of that person and running ahead. Now, who has been his counselor? That's coming to God and saying, yeah, God, you're wise, and you've made plans, and you've got great stuff, but I feel like there are a few things you might not have thought through in this situation. Like, let me give you a few pieces of advice. Like, you don't have to do this, you're God, but have you considered this? Just listen to this. I think I've got some pretty great ideas. So who has known the mind of the Lord? You're saying, oh yeah, I don't have anything to add to what God thinks or what he's done, but I understand everything he's doing. So I can kind of run ahead and I'm on the same trajectory. And that's what he was going to do anyway. Whereas who has been his counselor is, you know, God, I feel like maybe you haven't fully thought this through. Let me give you some advice. And you can do what you want with it. And to be clear, both of those are bad. <laughs> Running ahead of God doesn't work out. Because he's God. His riches of wisdom and knowledge are inexhaustible, so we can't fully know his mind. And trying to be God's counselor is also bad, because he's God. He does not need or require or request our counsel. He desires us, a relationship with us, but not our counsel. Again, it's like a little kid who tries to counsel their parent on something with like refinancing their house. It's like, well... I appreciate that, but I really don't need or want your help on this one. You don't really know what you're talking about. And the parent still loves that child, but they're like, no, I'm not going to listen to you on this. So that's the no. That's the human side. But there's also the divine side. So when we preach here at Hiawatha, we believe Scripture says things to us, often about us as people, but that also, and ultimately, it says things about Jesus. And so now... If we look at this through that Christ lens and we ask the questions again, who has known the mind of the Lord? Jesus has and does. Who has been God's counselor? Jesus has and is. Who has ever given to God that God owes repayment? Jesus has. Let's look at each of those briefly. Who has known the mind of the Lord? 
Jesus says at one point in John, I always do the will of my Father. Which implies that he knows the will of the Father. He knows God's plan. He knows the trajectory. He can run ahead. He doesn't, but he could because he knows the path. Because he helped set it. Jesus is God. He's part of the Trinity. The idea that as Christians we believe in one God who exists in three persons. Not three gods, one God. And not one person who just like appears as different things at different times. Three persons, one God. And yes, that's confusing. But it's God. If you had them all figured out, that would be a little worrisome. So, Jesus knows the mind of the Lord. He knows God's will. He knows God's plan. Always. Everything Jesus ever did in his ministry, ever, every word he ever spoke, every action he ever took, was part of God's plan. He knew God's mind, and he did the things that the Trinity had decided beforehand were the things that needed to happen at those specific times and places. Who has been God's counselor? Jesus has. Scripture talks about how the Trinity took counsel together to plan salvation. That's their idea. They worked together in that. They took counsel with each other. And this last one, like those two, it's like, oh yeah, for sure, like Jesus is God, so of course he knows the mind of the Lord, because uh, he's God. Of course he's been his counselor. It's part of the Trinity. You can see that in different parts of Scripture, and they talk about that in different parts but this last one, it's like, wait, like, God owes Jesus repayment? I don't know about that. But Jesus has given to God payment for sin on the cross, through his death on the cross. That's what he's given. There was payment that was owed, and Jesus said, I will make that payment. And he died, and he rose from the dead. And then figuratively wrote God that check and was like, here, sin is covered. I covered it. And now, God owes repayment. There are many places you can look to for this. One is 1 John uh, chapter 1, where it says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. He's just. It is now, as believers, it is unjust for God to not forgive you. He cannot not forgive you. Yeah, that works. It's unjust, because Christ has made the payment. Now, it's important in this to clarify that this is God's desire. So God, in saving us, doesn't feel like he's been tricked. He's not resentful. He's not like, oh, Jesse believed, and now he confessed his sin. I have to forgive him again. I hate this. What was I thinking when I made this plan? This is God's desire. God says, it is not my desire that any perish. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather, that they would all turn and live, turn to him and live. So God's not doing this like against his will or begrudgingly. He wants this. This was part of the plan that he and the Son and the Spirit made when they took counsel together. But take comfort in that, that God has chosen of his own will to owe Christ repayment. And we can have confidence in that, that that check that Jesus wrote for salvation will always be good. It'll never bounce. It'll never be rejected. So now we're going to work backwards through this Christ lens. We're going to go back to verse 33 and shed some light on how this riches of wisdom and knowledge, which is unsearchable and untraceable and unfathomable, can be ours. So in 1 Corinthians 1, it declares that Jesus is the wisdom of God. 
not just that he has the wisdom of God, but he is the wisdom. So the wisdom of God is now not just some idea or philosophy or some truths from the Bible. It is a person. Jesus Christ is the wisdom, from, uh, the wisdom of God. So if we have Christ now, we have the wisdom of God. In John 5, Jesus says that the Father doesn't judge anyone. He's entrusted all judgment to the Son, that the Son has searched out the Father's judgments. So how unsearchable are God's judgments? But Jesus has searched them out. Jesus knows them. And so again, if we have Jesus, we have access to that now. And finally, his paths are beyond tracing out. Jesus didn't just trace God's path. He didn't just lay out the map and mark it down. He walked God's path. And the path that he walked led out of Jerusalem up Golgotha to be nailed to a cross and died. That's the path that Jesus walked. That's the path we can't trace. You can't obtain your own salvation. You can't offer God a payment that's big enough for the debt that you owe. But you don't need to. God doesn't want you to and he doesn't expect you to because Jesus did it. Jesus walked that path. He walked the path to the cross and he rose from the dead and through that accomplished salvation. You see throughout the Gospels, Mark 10 is one place uh, when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem because he's told people, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And he's literally walking that path to Jerusalem. And when he does this, there are a couple places where it says, and the disciples were confused and everyone else was afraid. They don't fully understand what's happening, but they know that it's like, wait, Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And now he's going towards Jerusalem. That worries me. I'm afraid. I'm confused. Why is he doing that? Why isn't he going another way? Why isn't he staying out here in the suburb equivalent or the boonie equivalent, just preaching and teaching and healing? Because that wasn't the end of the path that he came to walk. He walked the path that we can't. So, back to the depth of the riches and that which is unfathomable. So in this passage, it talks about the riches that we have in Christ of wisdom and knowledge. And just briefly, I want to mention a few other uh, things about that, about riches. In Philippians 4, it says, God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ. All those riches, all the riches God has come to us through Christ. That's how we receive that. In Ephesians 2 and 3, it says the riches of Christ are boundless and incomparable. There's no bound. There's no end. The depth goes on forever. And nothing compares to them. There's no other riches you can hold up to it that even come close to measuring up. They're not even on the same scale. The distance is so great. So that's the riches that we have. That's how they come to us. But no... That it's not just wisdom and knowledge that God is rich in and shares with us through Christ. The New Testament says he's also rich in grace through Christ to us. Rich in kindness through Christ to us. Rich in patience through Christ to us. Rich in love through Christ to us. And maybe the biggest one, at least the one from which all others flow, is he's rich in salvation through Christ to us. The riches of God come to us through Christ and the salvation we obtain through what he did on the cross. So for all of you sitting here this morning, 
and for me, whether it's your first Sunday or you've been here every Sunday since the beginning, I ask you, what poverty have you come here with this morning? What poverty have you come here with this morning? And do you believe that Jesus has the riches to deal with that? Do you have poverty of relationship, poverty of hope, poverty of faith? Are you filled with doubt? Are you filled with fear? Are you filled with sorrow? Are you filled with hate? What poverty have you come here with this morning? Whatever it is, I don't know, but I don't need to know. God knows. And knowing that poverty, he doesn't say, well, get some money in your account, cut off a little of that poverty, and then come back and I'll make up the balance. No. He says no matter how big that poverty is, Christ paid for it. No matter what that poverty is, Christ can give you riches in that area. So the idea of unfathomable, you might come here and you might have, think you have a Mount Everest size piece of poverty. And it might be Mount Everest size. You might have all the poverty I just listed and they all might be Mount Everest size. But it says that the depth of the riches are unsearchable, unfathomable. No matter how big that poverty is and how many poverties you come with, you can take those mountains of poverty, and actually it's Christ who takes them from us and does it, and he throws them into the ocean of the payment that he made, of his blood, of his sacrifice. And those things sink and they're covered by the ocean and they're gone. It says God remembers them no more. No matter what size your poverty is, it's not greater than the riches Christ offers you today. Verse 36. For from him and through him and for him are all things. In James 1 it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from God. And it uses a different title for God because James is comparing and contrasting some different specific things. But every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from God. Every good and perfect gift of God's riches comes from God in Christ. It comes through God in Christ. And ultimately, although we receive the benefits of a lot of those, of salvation, of love, of mercy, of grace, and so in one sense, those things are for us. The New Testament even says that. It says, God's grace for you, God's love for you. But ultimately, even those things that are for us are for him and for his glory. Whatever poverty you come with, whatever doubt you have this morning, Whatever of those questions, who has known the mind of God, who's been his counselor, who's given in such a way that God owes repayment, that you've thought those things and you feel God does owe you repayment, or you can counsel God, or you fully understand what he's doing. In those sinful thoughts or those sinful actions, the riches of God's grace and kindness and salvation are still here for you. From him and through him and for him are all things. All for his glory. We get the benefit. We get salvation. We get eternal life. We get all these other benefits leading up to that eternal life. But know that ultimately those things are for him through Christ. Through him through Christ. And from him through Christ. And what can you say after that except to God be the glory forever? 
It's all in Jesus. Through the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus' death for our sins and resurrection for the grave, all things now come from God, not from you. They come through Christ's death and resurrection, not through you, not through your works, not through your accomplishments. And even, and they ultimately are for God. So come this morning. We're about to celebrate communion. Come to the table and celebrate the fact that it's not through you. It's not your depth of riches. It's not the path you trace out. It's the path Christ walked, and it's his riches, and it's his depth. Those are the things offered to us this morning and every day. To God be the glory forever in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have done the things we could not, that you walked the path we could not. God, we praise you that you have riches that you delight to share with us, that you're not stingy, that you're not running low, that everything you have is available to us, that you delight in sharing that. I pray, God, for those of us here who believe that, that you would remind us of that because we often doubt it and forget it and that you would strengthen us in that. I pray for those here, God, who don't believe that, who are searching for wisdom and knowledge and answers in other places, searching for love ultimately in other places, acceptance and worth in other places. God, that you would make them aware of their poverty as you would for all of us, and that that would not be something that causes them to shrink from you, but to run towards you to experience the riches you have to offer. Amen.